Our Father, as we come to your word today, we ask, O oh Father, that you would give us our daily bread. And Lord, we ask that you would have our hearts be sensitive to this difficult teaching that is so contrary to the nature of the flesh, this parable about forgiveness. Teach us, Lord, to reflect your forgiveness for us in the way that we love and forgive others. So may this parable speak to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit, that it may change our lives so that we can reflect your goodness and your nature in this world for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, we are going to be in Matthew chapter 18 today. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be starting in verse 21, uh, going all the way to verse 35. So we're going to be continuing our series in the parables, which we do the first Sunday of every month. And today we're going to be looking at the parable of the unforgiving servant, or the, the unmerciful servant, as some people call it. There is a story about a man who was bitten by a dog. And the dog turned out to be rabid. And so the man was rushed to the county doctor. This was 100 plus years ago before uh, they had any cures for for vaccines, for, for rabies. And so after running a series of tests on this man, the doctor concluded that the man did have rabies from the dog. And he said to the man, you know, I, I don't know if you have a will in order, but I would suggest that, you know, you've got some time here um, before we have to sedate you and just keep you comfortable until you die. So if, you, if you'd like, I can bring you a pen and some paper and you can write out your will if you don't already have one. And so the man said, yeah, that'd be great. And so the doctor brings him uh, a piece of paper and, and a pen and the man starts working furiously, writing furiously. And the doctor leaves and goes to look at, you know, go examine some other patients. And he comes back about an hour later and the man is still writing furiously and the doctor says, wow, that's, that's quite a will that you must be working out, but at least you have the time to do it. And the man looked up and said, this ain't no will, doc. This is a list of people I'm going to bite before I die. <laughs> <laughs> now we can laugh at that because we realize how ridiculous it is. The reality is most of us probably don't have a list like this, at least not on paper. But the question isn't really whether or not you have this list on paper. The question is really whether or not you have a list forming like this in your heart. We like to say that revenge is sweet. And in our flesh, we think that revenge is the right thing. Because revenge is just it's justice. And justice, how can justice be a bad thing, right? That's what we think in the flesh. There's just something natural about revenge. There's something enticing about revenge. And everybody has experienced the desire for revenge at some point or another in their life. Maybe somebody called you a name. And so, what do you do? You call them a name back. Maybe somebody cut you off in traffic. And so, what do you do? You ride their tail. You, you try to make them as uncomfortable as possible. And, and you don't go any further than that, right? Right? Maybe somebody stole something from you. And so you think, how can I get justice? What can I do back to this person? We all struggle with this desire for revenge, for vengeance. 
when somebody wrongs us, the nature of the flesh is to desire to make sure that the offending party, to make sure that the person who did us so wrong understands the depths and the severity of their injustice toward us. And yet, for the Christian, that's not the way it can work. We strive to live not according to the desires of the flesh, but according to the will of God as revealed in His Word. And God's will is always, always, always for us to forgive. One of the primary themes of the entire Bible is forgiveness, is reconciliation, restoration. Paul said to the Ephesians, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. And you want to say to Paul when you read that, yeah, easier said than done. It's really easy to talk about something like forgiveness, but it's not so easy to do it. It's easy to talk about it until you have some offense that's been done against you and you're struggling with the temptation to seek revenge. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them, Paul says to the Romans. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Insofar as it, belong, as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Ah! Paul, could you set the, the standard any higher for us? It's so high. And, and the more deeply that we've been wronged by someone unjustly, the more difficult that standard is for us to reach. And you start wondering, why does God just want me to forgive? D doesn't God care that somebody has done me wrong? Those are the types of questions that we ask. Those are the types of questions that we wrestle with when our flesh seeks revenge. And there was a time toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry when Peter was facing this very struggle of the flesh. This struggle to want to not forgive. To just hold a grudge. Peter had been following Jesus for roughly three years at this point. He had seen Jesus do all these incredible miracles Nobody in the history of humanity got to hear as much as, uh, as Jesus, uh, or of Jesus as Peter did. I mean, he sat under Jesus' teaching for three years. What a blessed place to be. And you would think that after three years of, of watching these incredible miracles and listening to all these mind-blowing teachings, that Peter would be so sanctified. You would think that Peter would be so Christ-like in his attitude. That he'd be so godly in the way that he not only acts, but in the way that he thinks. And I have no doubt that Peter thought that about himself too. But then, as you go through Matthew chapter 18, we come to this. Chapter 18, verse 21. It says, Then Peter came up, to, uh, came up and said to him, to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now we want to keep the context in mind here. We want to understand what led to this question. In the passage that led up to this point, Jesus was talking about church discipline. He was talking about how you handle somebody who is in unrepentant sin. And so upon hearing this, 
The wheels in Peter's head start turning. Oh, I, I'm, I'm going to be able to exercise some, some church discipline here. And the wheels are turning. And the first person that his brain spits out is his brother. Now, it could be the brother that we know and that we're familiar with, the, the disciple named Andrew, or it could be that this was a different brother that doesn't get mentioned in Scripture, and we just we don't know exactly who it is. We can't be sure, but what we can know is that at the time, the accepted standard for forgiving people was that you do it three times, but the fourth time, you have no obligation, moral, cultural, or otherwise, to forgive somebody. Three times. So, let's try to imagine what is going on in Peter's mind here. Let's, let's put ourselves in, in Peter's shoes for just a moment and, and understand that he's thinking that to forgive somebody seven times would be more than twice as many times as the rabbis taught or that the culture expected. In Peter's mind, do you, do you see what he's thinking when he puts this number seven out there? He thinks he's being generous. He thinks that to forgive somebody not just three times or four or five or six or seven times is generous. He feels like he's putting out this number that would make his, his charity toward his brother absolutely excessive. See, he, he's treating his relationship with his brother like a baseball game. You know, three strikes and you're out. Can you imagine if baseball had seven strikes? I mean, baseball couldn't work with seven strikes. Because there would be too many hits. The, the scores would be too high. The games already go forever. And so if you had seven strikes, nobody, nobody would be able to sit through an entire game. Strikeouts would be incredibly rare. And so in Peter's defense, he does feel like he's being more than fair. And he, he is exceeding every cultural norm, every expectation that the culture would have had on him for forgiveness, he is surpassing that. He's more than doubling that number. But the problem for Peter is that cultural norms hold no authority. Cultural norms hold no authority before God. And that, what matters to God, is really all that matters. Who cares about what the cultural norm is. I want to know God's thoughts. I want to know what God expects from me. Because the culture, man, they'll, they'll believe one thing today and they'll believe the very opposite tomorrow or, or next year. I don't care what the culture thinks. I just want to know what God thinks. And that's what Jesus wants for Peter. He wants Peter to know that forgiving somebody seven times Okay, that's a, that's a pretty good start, I guess, but it's just a drop in the bucket as far as God is concerned. So look at what Jesus says in response to, to Peter's question. Peter asks, do I forgive him seven times? And Jesus said to him, verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, some translations will say 70 times 7, and it's possible that that is what Jesus was saying. There's, there is some uncertainty in exactly how to translate that, but the number isn't really what's important. Whether it's 77 times or 70 times 7, which is 490 times, the point is there, there's a truth that, that, that's behind either, either way, and that is that if you're counting the number of times 
that you've forgiven somebody, the truth is you haven't even reached one yet. The point is that when you forgive somebody, you don't tally up a score. And besides, Peter doesn't even seem to consider the possibility of how many times his brother has had to forgive him. And based on what we know about Peter, it was probably a lot more than seven times. You can imagine, though, when Jesus says this, how shocking and how disheartening this would have been for Peter. Imagine that you are climbing this huge mountain. It seems huge, and you get to the top only to realize that it's just a hill. The real mountain is behind it, and it's way bigger than the first one. That's where Peter is at this point. He thought that he had, had scaled this great mountain, but it was just a molehill in comparison to what God expected. Here he thought he was being more than charitable, offering to forgive his brother seven times, but he's shown that he is not charitable enough with that number as far as God is concerned. And so this is what sets the stage for the parable known as the parable of the unforgiving or the unmerciful servant. Yes, this story was told to Peter, but it's a story that applies to every single one of us because it addresses an issue that every single one of us in our flesh struggles with. It teaches us how important God thinks it is for us to forgive. Before we continue, though, before we start looking at this parable, I do want to make, uh, make a couple notes about the nature of forgiveness. The first is that to forgive is not the same thing as to forget. The Bible speaks of God, uh, you know, holding our sins against us no more, you know, seeing our sins no more. But that's not saying that God isn't aware of what took place, that He's not aware of the things that we've done. No, what it means is that He's no longer holding those sins against us. That's what forgiveness is. It's not the same as forgetting. Number two, Forgiveness does not overlook or justify or excuse the wrongdoing of the wrongdoer. So to forgive someone for wrongdoing is entirely different from approving of or or condoning somebody's actions. If somebody does wrong to you and you decide to forgive them, that doesn't mean that you're okay with what they did. All it means is, again, you're not holding it against them. So, Forgiving isn't the same as forgetting. Uh, it doesn't mean, for, forgiving doesn't mean justifying somebody's actions or approving of somebody's actions. And number three, to forgive somebody doesn't mean that there won't be consequences. To forgive somebody doesn't mean that there won't be consequences. There may very well still be consequences, such as a loss of trust, which can take years to earn back. But forgiveness says, I'm not going to hold this against you, and I will stick with you until you earn my trust back. So with these three principles about forgiveness established, let's take a look at this parable and see how important God thinks it is that we forgive. So we start with verse 23, chapter 18, verse 23, and we'll go to verse 27 to start. Jesus says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one of them was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, 
his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. One of the many lessons that we will glean from this parable is that our greatest need is not to figure out how many times we need to forgive somebody before it's okay with God for us to just write them off or cut them off or whatever, cut them out of our will, write them out of our will, or add them to the the hypothetical revenge list that we have in our hearts. No, our greatest need is none of those things. Our greatest need is to be forgiven. And so to illustrate this truth, Jesus tells us this story about a king. And this king has many, many servants. And some of his servants owe him some money. And so he calls them before him, deciding to settle his, uh, the accounts that he has with them, meaning they're, they're going to be brought before him and told, this is how much you owe and you need to be able to pay this back. And so Jesus draws our attention to only one of these servants who owes him so much money that it's absolutely laughable. The servant owes the king 10,000 talents. And if you're not sure, or if you're wondering how many talents that is, or how, how much that really equates to, that's a good thing because this is kind of interesting. If you know that a denarii is a day's wage, a talent is roughly equal to 6,000 denarii. Now, a talent would be made of either gold or, or silver, but since Jesus is trying to give us this absolutely unthinkably astronomical figure for the point of illustration, let's assume that the talent that he's talking about wasn't made of silver, but that it was made of gold. Now, the other thing that we need to understand about a talent is that while it would be made of silver or gold, they would weigh roughly 75 pounds. So, Doing some basic math, we see that 75 pounds times 10,000 talents means that we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 750,000 pounds of gold. Now, what's that worth? Well, in our day and age, gold sells for between $1,200 and $1,300 per ounce, but let's just be conservative and, and multiply 1,200 on the low side, 1,200 times 9 million ounces. And that brings us to a total of $10.8 billion. That's how much this man, this servant, this slave owes the king. Man, that is a lot of money to owe to a king. It's one thing to owe, owe a credit card agency. It's another thing to owe a king. But the point is, that he owes far more than he would ever, ever, ever be able to repay. Even if he had a hundred lifetimes to repay this sum, he would never, ever be able to repay the king. And so the servant, as we might guess, has no way of paying this back. Which means that the servant, his wife, and his children are all going to be sold off into slavery as a way for the king to recuperate some of his losses. But the man, upon hearing what the king's plan is to sell them all off into slavery, the man falls to his knees and he begs 
the king. O king, please, king, I beg you, just have some patience with me. He doesn't ask for the debt to be forgiven. Just, just have some, some patience with me. I, I don't have your money, but king, I'm, I'm going to work and work and work, and I will work so hard to make enough money to pay you back for all that I owe you. If anything is completely obvious from this man's plea, it's that he doesn't seem to have the word impossible in his vocabulary. He doesn't seem to to grasp the fact that it would be impossible for him to pay back the king for this enormous sum. The king knows it. The king knows this guy's never going to be able to pay me back. And so out of sheer mercy, not out of any kind of obligation, not out of a a sense of just wanting to, to do the right thing, just out of sheer mercy, the king says the debt's canceled. You don't owe anything. You're free to go. And this would have grabbed the attention of everybody who was gathered around Jesus listening to him because kings would never do this kind of thing. And so they would be thinking, wow, what kind of a king would forgive such an enormous debt? What kind of a king would show such mercy? What kind of a king would show compassion to somebody who's just a lowly slave? What kind of a king would show such incredible grace? No, kings of the ancient world weren't a bunch of nice guys. They weren't exactly charitable. They were known for being cold, ruthless people who who showed no mercy to even their own family, much less to a servant who owed more money than the entire city was worth. So there are two important things for us to gather so far. Number one, the man owed a debt that he would never, ever be able to repay. It was a debt that was too big for him to repay. The second thing we need to realize is that he didn't even seem to notice how impossible it would be to repay the king. And because he doesn't see how great this act of mercy is, because he doesn't see how great the king's kindness is unto him, that's reflected in his actions. He's not changed at all by it. He's not phased at all by it because he doesn't see how great this act of mercy was. So what does this half of the parable mean for you and me? Well, let's start breaking it down. Who does the king represent? God, right. The king is, is God. Who's the servant who owes a debt that he could never, ever repay? It's us. It's you. It's me. Except that we don't owe God a financial debt. Rather, our debt is a sin debt. We've sinned against God constantly since the moment we were even conceived in the wombs of our mothers. We were not born in innocence. We were born in sin with a sin nature. And what can we do? To repay this debt. Nothing. We can't. It is impossible for us to repay the sin debt. The sum of your offenses toward God, 
is so great that you would never in a hundred thousand lifetimes be able to repay it. If you had a million lives to pay Him back, you wouldn't even have a drop in the proverbial bucket. Because your rap sheet as a sinner is longer than all of the paper in the world could possibly contain. And this is the truth that you must realize in order to appreciate the beauty of the good news of the Gospel. The Gospel is that you have sinned greatly against God, and all that you have earned is His wrath. But Jesus died to pay the debt that was owed to God on behalf of all who would trust in Christ alone for their salvation. You cannot earn God's grace. You cannot earn salvation. All you can do is see the enormity of the debt that you owe to God. The enormity of your sin against God. And beg Him for mercy. Plead with Him. Knowing, unlike this servant, that the debt that you owe is far greater than you could ever repay. This is your greatest need. This is my greatest need. We have sinned against a God who is not just holy, but who the Scriptures say is holy, holy, holy. As a way of underscoring it, make sure you don't miss the fact this God is holy. And He is perfectly just. Perfectly righteous in all of His ways. Which means that He must punish every single sin. He can't just overlook our sin. He must punish every sin. And so our greatest need is to not have our sins held against us. Our greatest need is to be forgiven. Our greatest need is for the debt, the sin debt that we owe God to be transferred to somebody else who's not only able to pay that for us, but who is willing to freely pay it off. And that is something that only Jesus Christ can do. You must repent of any and every idea that you could possibly pay off this sin debt. And you must believe that Jesus alone, faith in Jesus alone, can reconcile you to God. Only Jesus can reconcile you to the God who is holy, holy, holy and must punish every sin. God promises 100% complete forgiveness for everyone who will repent and believe in His only Son, Jesus Christ. And there is no other way. There is no other way to have your sin debt forgiven. Salvation doesn't end there, though. That's called justification. It's where God removes the penalty, the debt of sin from us. No, salvation goes beyond that. It's not just lip service. It is life service. Our lives must be changed. They must be transformed by the goodness and the grace and the power of God working within us. And that brings us to our second greatest need. Our first greatest need is to be forgiven. Our second greatest need is to become more like Jesus to grow in in His likeness. And, And part of becoming more like Jesus 
Part of growing in Christ's likeness will mean learning to submit ourselves to the will of God the way that Jesus did. And part of God's will is for us as His people to extend forgiveness to others with the same eager willingness that we had to receive forgiveness from God. Let's continue. Verses 28 to 35. Jesus continues with the story. He says, But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused, and went to put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, Jesus says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The reason that it's so important that we see how ignorant this man was of the size of his debt and the graciousness of the king in forgiving his debt comes into play here. You would think that if a person who owes 10 plus billion dollars is forgiven, that they would be gracious in kind to others. But what this man does is as soon as the king lets him go, as soon as the king releases him from his debt, he goes out and he finds somebody who owes him a hundred denarii, which is very, very small. It's a minuscule fraction of what the first servant owed the king. And so he finds this man who owes him a little bit of money, and he decides to collect on the spot. He starts choking the man. He starts yelling at the man, instructing him to pay back what he owes. This servant who just received such incredible, such deep mercy from the king turns around and is absolutely merciless toward this other person who owed him just a fraction of what he had owed the king. And so what does the second servant do? He actually says the same thing that the first servant said to the king. He, he, he begs with him. He pleads with him. Just please be, be patient with me. I, I don't have your money now, but I promise I, I will work hard and I will pay you back. And in this case, it's a little bit more realistic that he would actually be able to do it. But instead of showing mercy. Instead of showing the same kindness that he was so eager to receive, the first servant has the second servant thrown in prison until he's able to repay the debt, which was how they settled uncollected debts in the first century in Rome. And the other servants, apparently they're gathered around as this guy's being choked and, and being you know yelled at and told you need to pay this money back right now. And these other servants, they, they, they just can't believe what they're seeing. 
They can't believe that this guy who is forgiven of such an incredibly great debt would be so ruthless. The idea of forgiving those who are indebted to him doesn't even cross his mind and the people around can't believe it. The mercilessness of this first servant, Jesus says it distresses them. And it distresses them so much that they go to the king to make sure that he understands and he's aware of how ruthless this first servant was. Now you are supposed to be seeing things and feeling things and understanding things from the same perspective as these people who were gathered around. These other servants. You're supposed to see that this servant who had been forgiven so greatly, refusing to forgive somebody else in kind who owed just a minuscule amount in comparison to what he owed, is so deeply wrong. You're supposed to see that there's something very, very wrong with the way that this guy isn't showing kindness as he received kindness. You're supposed to see that it is the height of absurdity to be forgiven of a debt that you would never, ever be able to repay, only in turn to turn around and to refuse to show the same type of forgiveness that was shown to you. I suffered a great offense once in my life. Long before I became a Christian, I was wronged, I was offended very deeply. And I spent years and years thinking about and plotting revenge. And the truth is that in my heart, I stood guilty as a murderer before God. I was just waiting for the right opportunity to get revenge. I had a baseball bat in the trunk of my car with this guy's initials on it. And if I ever caught him in a dark alley, he was going to pay. Years before I was a Christian, I was a murderer in my heart. Guilty. And when I became a Christian and started talking with the pastor of the church that I was going to, I started to to realize that the offense that I had suffered paled in comparison to even the smallest sin that I had committed against God. And to this day, I try to maintain that perspective. That my smallest sins are more offensive to God than the greatest sins anybody commits against me. In the story, the king is infuriated. He's so disgusted, he throws the first servant in prison until he could repay the debt. He doesn't sell him into slavery. He puts him into hard labor prison to repay the debt, which he knows would never, ever happen. And Jesus ends this parable with a statement that leaves a lot of people feeling very confused. Look at what he says in verse 35. He says, So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Man, what what does that mean? What are we supposed to gather from that? Let me say this much to begin with. It should terrify you when you realize that you are holding on to a grudge. 
and you remember this parable. It should scare you when you are tempted to hold on to unforgiveness. The Christian life is one of repeated, daily self-examination. And this is one of the things that we must constantly be checking for in our hearts. I'll tell you what this doesn't mean. What Jesus says, I'll tell you what, what, what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean what liberal theologians want it to mean. Here's what, they'll say, this, here's what they'll say. They'll say, well, you know, now Jesus is giving us a clear picture of, of how to be saved. Forget about what Paul says. Jesus has more authority. There is no necessity for, for blood sacrifice or atonement or anything like that. If we want to be forgiven, we must forgive others. That is the liberal position on this passage. And so what you end up with is a salvation that is dependent entirely upon you, dependent entirely upon your willingness, your ability to do something. That is to say, it is a works-based salvation. That is not what Jesus is teaching here. That's what you would call the social gospel. The social gospel isn't even a gospel. It's a false gospel because it removes the need for a substitutionary atonement And it replaces it with the idea that if you will just be good enough, if you will just be nice enough, if you will just act right, then God will be happy with you. And that is not what Scripture teaches at all. Jesus is not contradicting Paul. Jesus never contradicts Paul. The Scriptures fit together perfectly. There are no contradictions. Others will say that this is a passage which is really about the reality of the the possibility of losing your salvation. After all, the first servant appears to be off the hook initially. He he appears to be forgiven, but then he's he's not. He he loses that forgiveness. No, that's, that's not what Jesus is teaching here either. The reality is that this man remained captive to his sin. He thought he was capable capable of satisfying the king by repaying the debt, even though it was impossible. So no, Jesus is not saying in this passage, he's not teaching that we can lose our salvation. This isn't even a a, a passage or a parable about salvation per se, as, as much as it is a parable about the nature of salvation, the way that it affects us affects us as recipients of it the change that forgiveness brings about in the hearts of those who truly receive it no the point of the parable is that it's impossible for the sinner who realizes the size of their sin debt and is forgiven to be in a state of refusal to show the same type of forgiveness to others. The point is it's impossible to be forgiven the way God forgives and yet to refuse to show the nature of God in the way that you act and treat others. Peter, who was, remember, he's the reason that this parable was told. He would wrap his mind around this lesson and years later, He would be a means through which the Holy Spirit would tell us through Peter's pen. Peter wrote this, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. 
His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Even the ability to forgive. His divine power has granted to us all things, not most things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The reality is, this unforgiving servant, as hypothetical as he may be, never escaped the corruption of his sinful desires. Rather than being changed by the king's kindness, his heart just grew harder by it. He saw it as an opportunity to be more ruthless than a king and to go after those who owed him. The grace of God, unlike the forgiveness of this hypothetical king, the grace of God has the power to change. It is impossible for those who have received it, who have truly received it, to not be changed by it, to not be transformed by it. To use the king's words here for the man who refuses to be changed by the grace of God, it is wicked. We, are a, we would be a wicked servant to suppose that we could receive God's forgiveness, but then turn around and refuse to show it to others. So there are three main points that I think we should walk away with from this parable. First, Jesus teaches that judgment is coming. A day of judgment is coming against those who remain wicked servants. That judgment is coming for everyone who has not been reconciled to God by grace through faith in Christ alone. Secondly, there is forgiveness. There is an offer of forgiveness. And that forgiveness is received by faith. That forgiveness is received by repenting and believing in Christ who bore the sin debt on our behalf as our substitute. He took the sin of His people upon Himself and He exchanged it for His righteousness. Our sin imputed to Him. His righteousness imputed to us. Forgiveness is offered freely. You can't earn it. All you can do is believe and receive it. And third, and finally, friends, we must see that God's grace unto us is supposed to change our lives. We have to see that the only sure proof that a person has received forgiveness through true saving faith in Christ is that their heart, their life, is changed and changing and is growing in the direction of Christ's likeness. That's not to say that we're going to be perfect. We're not looking for perfection. We're looking for direction. Growing in Christ's likeness. That bears witness to us being, as Peter said, partakers of the divine nature. 
And so as we, as we close and as we prepare ourselves to come to the communion table this morning, may we come as people who are both forgiven and forgiving. May we lay any grudges, any revenge lists that we might be conjuring up in our hearts aside. As we see how small even the greatest offense that somebody else might commit to us, say how small it is in comparison to the way our sin was an offense to God. And so we're willing to lay our grudges aside. We're willing to forgive because we've been forgiven of a debt that is infinitely greater than what might be owed to us. And so let us reflect Christ in our willingness to forgive, in our willingness to show mercy to those who offend us, remembering how much greater God's forgiveness, God's mercy is unto us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, in our hearts, we do confess that we struggle with this. We confess that there have been times when we have so deeply wanted to seek revenge. And so it is so contrary to our nature, so contrary to our flesh, that you would instruct us to forgive. And you would remind us in this parable of how greatly we have been forgiven. That it was a sin debt that we could never possibly come close to repaying. That the only alternative is to suffer Your wrath forever. But we thank You for sending Christ, Your only Son, who stepped out of eternity and took on flesh and lived a perfect life and died a perfect death in the place of those of us who will trust in Him for our salvation. Thank You, Lord, that the sin debt through Christ was removed from us and that we can stand before You forgiven. Not that we could ever deserve it, but that all we could ever say is that You are a good God. You are a merciful God and forgiving God who desires for us to release others of debts of sin against us. Lord, may we reflect your goodness. May we reflect your mercy. May we reflect your compassion as we realize how incredible your mercy unto us is. Thank you, Lord, that day by day, morning after morning, your mercies are new. Thank you for sending your Son to redeem us and to reconcile us to you for the glory of Christ. Amen.
This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.